Welcome. We'll, uh, we'll open up with prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can gather together in freedom to learn about your word and that we could sit under your means of grace. And we thank you today for the resurrection. We do pray, Heavenly Father, that you would use the word to help sustain us and enable us to persevere into that great day that you return for us in the clouds. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, dear ones, we got three more slides on the book of Revelation. So my prayer is that we would finish that by today. I think we, that's within reach. It's within striking distance, as they say. So I want to just do a little review of where we left off last time. We're in Revelation 22, 16 through 17. And here Jesus is the speaker all the way through verse 19. So he's speaking directly. So even if your Bibles do not have that highlighted in red, this is Jesus speaking, again, all the way to verse 19. And so let me just read it again. G- Revelation twenty-two sixteen through 17. It says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes to take the water of life without cost. Now, dear ones, notice here in the red, I had mentioned last time where it says, I am the root and the descendant of David. Let me pull up my pointer. This is an allusion back to Isaiah 11, 1 through 10. So if you read that passage, and by the way, it's a wonderful passage to read. Maybe read that tonight before you go to bed. Isaiah 11, 1 promised that the coming Messiah would be a descendant of David. But in verse 10... It says that he would also be the source of David, the root of David. And I think that that's surely what is being alluded to there. What's beautiful about Isaiah 11, 1 through 10, is it shows us that the restoration to the Davidic kingdom was going to come through Messiah, and that the Messiah was going to be both truly God and truly man. So it's one of the passages that shows us that the Messiah had to be God and man. Fully God, fully man, and one individual. Okay, you see it also, by the way, remember in Isaiah 9? Unto us a son is given, unto us a, a child is given, unto us a son is born, and the, the government's going to be upon his shoulders. Remember, he's also called what? Mighty God, wonderful counselor. So in one passage in Isaiah 9, he's truly a man, he's a son, but he's also called mighty God. Okay, so you see in Isaiah 9 that he's going to be the God-man as well. So Isaiah 11, 1 through 10, very very important. Now, the other thing I wanted to point out is, I think I talked about this last time, was that Jesus here is referring to himself as the bright and morning star. Now, you remember, of course, and you don't have to turn to this, but just jot it down. In Numbers 24, the great Balaamic prophecy was that one day there was going to be a star that would come up out of Jacob. And of course, that's a messianic reference. But here, I don't think Jesus is necessarily referring to that I think he's simply pulling on everything that in the creation that people would know. In other words, he's using the idea that when you go out in the morning, most people will see a star that's bright. It's typically Venus, which is referred to as the morning star. The image that Jesus is using is that as he comes, he is going to bring in a new age, like a new day dawning, where righteousness will rule, the swords will be beaten to plowshares, the spears into pruning hooks, The nations shall no longer learn war anymore. They will come up and give honor and glory to Yahweh who is going to be reigning. That is Jesus Christ in Jerusalem. So that's the idea. There's a new day that dawns 
in the person and work of Christ. I think that's really what's behind this morning star reference. Now we come to verse 17. We didn't cover this last time. Notice verse 17. You have an invitation. It's fourfold. Let me just show you the four different invitations. Let's start with number one. First of all, the first invitation is to the spirit and the bride. Notice the spirit and the bride say, come. So who would be the spirit here? Well, that would be the Holy Spirit. And I think certainly, even though the bride was referred to as the New Jerusalem, I think without a doubt, the bride here is the church. Okay, the bride is most often used in Revelation to refer to the church. So the idea then is the Holy Spirit and the church are saying, come. So that's number one. Notice number two, it says, and let the one who hears say, come. Now, what's interesting about that is the one who hears, I'll talk more about this in a moment, is usually synonymous with those who believe, and therefore, why aren't they linked to the bride? Are you with me? In other words, that would be a a believer as well. I think the reason why is the bride may accentuate the church that is, and those who hear are those who are going to believe. In other words, they will, will be part of the bride because they will believe. All right? So that's the second invitation. The third invitation, notice it says, and let the one who is thirsty come. Then the fourth invitation, let the one who wishes to take the water of life without cost. All right, now, the reason I cite these four different invitations is there's debate as to how we should understand them. One view says that the first two invitations are invitations of the Spirit and the church for Jesus Christ to come. It's the second invitations then, the last two, that are invitations for salvation. The second view is that all four invitations are invitations for people to come to faith in Christ. I would hold to the former, that the first two are invitations for Christ to come. Now, the simple reason I hold to that is, first of all, if you notice in verse 20, I don't have my whole Bible in front of me, but I believe it's in verse 20, we'll come to it. Notice Jesus answers the question, yes, I am coming. And then it's even reiterated by John, uh, amen, come Lord Jesus. Okay, so one of the difficulties that I had though, and this is how we should think about this passage, notice you have the term come, that's an imperative. And the difficulty with that is how can we understand the spirit, well, I can understand perhaps the spirit, but how can we understand the church commanding Christ to do something? However, this imperative command come should really be seen as a longing desire and an invitation in context. The desire of the church is that he come. I think that that's probably the best way to understand it. Okay, now, let's talk about this invitation of the Spirit and the bride to say, come. The Holy Spirit and the church long for the desire of the coming of Christ. And so you know that if you are longing for the desire of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, you are thinking in lines of the Holy Spirit. Remember, Bob gave us a whole series of messages about how the work of the Spirit always brings about the confession of Christ. The Holy Spirit, according to John 15, is the one that's going to bring us to remembrance of all that Christ has said. In fact, in John 16, he's also going to reveal us, reveal to us, excuse me, the things that are to come. So the Holy Spirit that gives us the scriptures. And the scriptures are that which tells us about Jesus Christ coming again. Now, the other thing I want to point out is notice where it says, and let the one who hears say come. Why is that significant? Well, again, I think these are people who are believers in the future. 
Remember, in the, both the Old and the New Testament, the one who hears isn't just simply hearing sound waves go through their ear, but inferred is that they're hearing unto salvation, that they're hearing with faith. So think about the famous uh, Shema, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. That's Deuteronomy 6.4. Well, notice it says, Hear. And when Moses commands, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one, he's not simply saying, Hear the sounds that go through your eardrums. He's saying, Hear this unto belief. That's the idea. Now, I want to show this further because it's an important concept in the Bible, hearing unto faith. Turn your Bibles to John chapter 10. John chapter 10, verses 26 through 29. And again, I'm claiming that this is still this desire by a believer in the future that will desire Christ to come. But again, in John 10, 26 through 29, you'll see that the one who hears is the one who believes. John 10, 26 through 29. Notice Jesus here says, but you, and he's talking to the Jewish, the Jewish audience that didn't believe in him. He says, you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. Verse 27, he says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. By the way, one of the most glorious passages proving the eternal security of the believer, what we like to refer to as the perseverance of the saints, that if you're a true believer, you will never perish. Why? Because Jesus Christ has a firm grasp on you. It's not that we grasp onto him, but rather it's that we're in his grasp, the Holy One of Israel. But the the passage I want to focus on, though, there, the verse, is verse 27. Notice it says, those who hear my voice. Jesus' sheep hear his voice, meaning they hear with belief. And so I think that's inferred here as well, that these are going to be future believers, and when they come to faith, they're also going to invite Christ to what? To come. That's the desire of every single believer. Come, Lord Jesus. Yes, Levon. Oops, hold on. We've got to get you on tape, so anything you say can and will be held against you, yeah, <laughs> or held for you, too. Yeah. And that's how we receive faith, is by hearing the gospel. Amen. And that passage that says, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Amen. That one. Exactly, Romans ten seventeen. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ, or some uh, manuscripts have the word of God. E- exactly right. So think about you and I have a desire for Jesus Christ to come, What's becoming very vogue in our age is a theological movement that says, well, that's escapism. You don't want to help build the kingdom here and now. You just want to escape and have Jesus Christ come and solve all of your problems. Yeah, you betcha. (laughs) That's a godly thing to desire, that Jesus Christ would come. Okay, so that's what we see here in this passage. Bob, do you have anything on this? I think this is very fitting, being how we're going to be talking about the... Doctrine of election when you're done with Yes, this. amen. That's uh, right. Right here is what needs to be central, and it makes the difference between what we call hyper-Calvinism and true evangelical faith. Right. And that's the presence of the universal call. Amen. And I think that's a good cross-reference in John 10. Yeah. Because... Looking forward, we don't know who's going to hear. Right. 
Nobody does. That's right. We so, just proclaim. Yeah. yeah. And so if the gospel is proclaimed with clarity and authority, and it's about Christ, yeah. the Holy Spirit testifies about Christ, his sheep will hear, yeah. and they will come. Amen. And we don't know who they are. That's right. Okay? And so there's, this is essential. Yeah. And this thing about the Holy Spirit will testify of me, Jesus said. Yeah. I think we have an article, and maybe a video. Don't we have a video? Yes. It's on the front page of the CIC site. Okay, yeah. Uh, I got into a debate with some of the apostles and prophets. Yeah. And so I said, here, go, just go watch this. And we go through verse after verse after verse after verse yeah. where the Holy Spirit testifies about Christ. Right. And then the response was, yeah, but you're being selective. They wanted to say the way you know you have the Spirit is signs and wonders. Right, right. And so then they say, well, yeah, well, okay, that's all great, but we want signs and wonders. And you're ignoring all those verses. Right. But that's a fallacious argument. Yeah. Because we're not talking about what the Holy Spirit can do, because the Holy Spirit is God. Right. The one thing we know he cannot do is lie. Yeah. Well, they kind of ignore that one, too. (laughs) But the issue is how we know it's the Spirit. Yeah. Okay? And we know that there are also false signs and wonders. We've been talking about that on the radio. Yeah, that's right. Because we see that in Revelation. And so if you see a supernatural event, it may or may not be from the Holy Spirit. Yeah. But one thing the false spirit of the Antichrist will not do is confess Christ. Yeah. And preach the gospel. Because that would be Satan working against his own interests. Right, right. All right, so that's why the issue is discernment. How do you know a true work of the Spirit? Wherever Christ is preached and confessed accurately and forthrightly without shame and authoritatively, there is a work of God through his Spirit. Amen. And when that happens, here's the universal call. Because we don't know who they are who will hear the voice, we preach it to everybody. Right. We don't just sit here in church and think, well, maybe signs of regeneration will show up somewhere. (laughs) Uh, No, we preach the gospel. And so you could almost, what's the Latin? Our daughter Jessica there studied Latin. Sine qua non, without which not. Yeah, the essential ingredient. Yeah. Yeah, sine qua non, I think, is the Latin phrase. Yeah. If the Spirit of God is present, Christ is preached. Amen. And if Christ is not preached, or a false Christ is preached, that's right. Then you don't have the Holy Spirit. Bob, and that's what you taught us in 1 John 4 1 through 2. The uh, confession of Christ come in the flesh gives us the true Christ, amen. not a Christ who is just an ethereal spirit. Or, right, amen. You know, um, as Bob mentions, the hyper-Calvinists, the hyper-Calvinists would say that, well, you don't have to preach the gospel. If they're the elect, they're just going to come. But what Bob's rightly pointing out in this text and in many others, you have the universal call. That's why Paul says, remember in Romans 10, how will they hear unless someone preaches? And he says, blessed are the feet of those who bring good news. They, they bring the gospel. So 
what we would say is, yes, we believe in the doctrine of election, but we also believe that God uses means. He uses us to proclaim the gospel, then he regenerates. That's the idea. So the distinction between hyper-Calvinism and Calvinism on the point of election is, do you believe in the general call or what's called the universal call? The universal call is all who call in the name of the Lord will be saved. When we proclaim the gospel, that's the universal call. But there's also something called the effectual calling. The effectual calling is where God ends up regenerating those who will believe. And you see this, for example, in Romans 8.30, for those whom he predestined, he called. For those whom he called, he justified. For those whom he justified, he also then glorified. Oftentimes, that's referred to as the golden chain. Interestingly enough, all those verbs are aorist active indicatives, meaning they all occurred in God's mind. If you've been predestined, you've also been called. If you've been called, you've been justified. If you've been justified, you also in his mind have been glorified. Talk about great security. So, yeah, absolutely, Bob makes a great distinction there. And Again, this is another text that shows us that indeed we have a universal call. Now, where is this universal call? It's a great segue, Bob. Thanks for doing so. It's like we're a well-oiled machine here. Oh, I'm sorry. Eric, you got something. Um, yeah, Paul. Right. If you're uh, in association with uh, a person who does proclaim Jesus as Lord, as far as I can tell, maybe it's because I read into that, that's what I want to hear. I don't know, but I think he is. But every now and then there's a, some phrases that are slid in there that are kind of haphazard, seemingly shoddy, but not really well thought out. But Jesus is proclaimed as Lord, as far as I can see. Um, how do we deal with a thing like that? So, I'm sorry, so you're saying you're listening to preaching and there's some terminology that is put into the... Questionable, and Questionable. You know, as Bob is talking about the confession of Christ, remember Paul warns about in 2 Corinthians 11, a different Christ, a different spirit, and therefore a different gospel. So what you look for is, let's take Christ. When we look at the gospel, the gospel, the good news, the euangelion, it's where we get our term evangelical, it centers on the person of Christ and the work of Christ. So if there's any distortion to his person or his work, and that's often where it occurs, then you have a different gospel. So, for example, I was just talking to Bob about one of the reasons I had given the message Friday the way I did about the Day of Atonement is I knew I had a brother-in-law coming there. And my brother-in-law would claim to believe in Jesus, but he goes to a church where they don't believe that Jesus died on the cross to be a substitution, But it's more of the idea that Jesus died on the cross to show us simply how much God loves us but didn't pay a penalty. They poo-poo the idea of propitiation and expiation. So they'll talk about Jesus. They'll even affirm that perhaps he's God. I don't know. They don't make a big deal of that. But they'll talk about Jesus all the time. But they'll never confess the work of Christ and how we can be saved. And therefore, I have the right, as a New Covenant believer... To under Matthew 18, remember we have to do binding and loosing. I look at the terms of the new covenant, and because he's distorting the work of Christ, he's distorting Christ, and therefore he has a different Christ, he has a different spirit, and he has a different gospel. So that's how we should always reason, I think. Now, sometimes you won't have evidence. You just don't perhaps have enough data to know. Perhaps you should ask whoever's preaching, can you clarify? Can you clarify? Um, One thing that Bob and I ran into, though, constantly is oftentimes... If you need constant clarification and you never hear the terms of the gospel, it's because they don't really believe it. We've termed that file cabinet theology. You go to a seminary, you say, why don't you teach the gospel? They go to the file cabinet, they pull out their statement of faith, they say, we hold to it. 
You say, yeah, I never hear it by any of the professors, any of the classrooms, and therefore none of the students know. So it has to be confessed, and you should ask for clarification. That's how I would handle that, Paul. Does, does that help? Okay. You know, I, I think part of that, too, you know, they may say Jesus is Lord, but what do you mean by that? Exactly. Do you mean that Jesus is the sovereign Lord in control of all things? Do you mean then that since he is Lord, we must obey him? And usually that last point, they'll start to backpedal. Well, um, but you yeah. see, I, um, well, I just believe. That's all I have to do is just right. believe. Right. So sometimes just qualifying what do you mean by that term helps. And the other part of that is, is this central to the preaching? And yeah. I had a Facebook conversation the other day with a pastor in Hutchinson whose church is, oh, y'all missed it. Their church is handing out $50 gift cards to Walmart and Menards and free toys for the kids if you go today. Well, yeah, so. exactly. <laughs> Hold Brian down. <laughs> if, if you hurry, you might make it there in time. And so, and so I asked him, uh, and, and I just said, okay, so if I send my unbelieving friend there, will they hear about Christ and him crucified? Will they hear about Jesus who lived as God and with God from all eternity, was born of a virgin, lived the sinless life that we never could, died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins, rose again on the third day, appeared to many witnesses, ascended to the right hand of the Father where he ever lives to intercede for us, and is coming again to judge the living and the dead. Will they hear this? And his response to me was, well, that's the gospel that I hold to, but I prefer to follow the prompting of the Spirit and just show Christ in the way I live. And then he said, but I guess they'll always be Pharisees. Wow. So, wow. well, the Holy Spirit doesn't prompt you to give out gift cards on Easter. That, yeah. That's not a work of the Holy <laughs> Spirit. And so he, on the one hand, says, yes, that's what I believe which I question, right. but clearly that was not what is central in that church. That was that file cabinet theology. If somebody asks, I'm going to yeah, say, oh, yeah, right. all that, what she said. Oh, by the way, you're a Pharisee. So. Wow. Excellent point, yeah. Jessica. Yeah, Bob. Well, I remember when I first started doing writing back yeah. in the late 80s, early 90s, the big issue then, and still is, was the word of faith. Oh, yeah. Well, on TV would be Kenneth Copeland with a great big sign over his head, Jesus is Lord. Hmm. And he's preaching that distinctive uh, doctrine that, that uh, really isn't Christian. Yeah. Okay, it's more like Christian science. Well, in his doctrine, I still have the, i got to digitize the, the audio cassette. But he believes and has publicly preached that Jesus Christ lost his divinity. Hmm. And became just an ordinary human like anybody else. Wow. And went into hell and had to have a big fight as only man, not God, with the devil. Yeah. Okay. So right there, I don't care if he says Jesus is Lord. He doesn't believe it because the deity of Christ implies the attributes of God the Son. Yeah. Okay. And one of the essential attributes of God as I've said many times, is non-contingent. Amen. Okay, contingency means depending on something outside of yourself for existence. Right. So John 1.1 says that God 
was, that Jesus was face to face with God from all eternity. Yeah, man. He's not contingent. If his deity comes, so that's a heresy that anybody <laughs> would say is heresy. Right, exactly. Some heretics said Jesus' divinity came to him when he was baptized. Yeah. Or when the Holy Spirit descended, then he became God. Or he lost his divinity when he was in hell, they say. Again, that's not the Christ of the Bible. Amen. So Kenneth Copeland can say Jesus is Lord 10,000 times, and he doesn't believe it for one second. Right, right. Because he, he believes that humans can be, gain the same status that Jesus had yeah. if we have enough faith, and we can actually do greater miracles than he did. Amen. And so this is essential. You're absolutely right. Yeah. The file cabinet doesn't determine what people believe. That's right. I've known that since I was a teenager That's when right. pastors said that there are no miracles and whatever the Bible said happened didn't really happen. Wow. Every one of them had to uh, raise their hand and swear an oath to believe what they now will refuse to preach. Hmm. Okay? So listen to the sermons, and you will find out what the pastor believes. Amen. That's right. And if week after week after week after week and year after year, the f- Jessica just explained what it is. Yeah. Okay, and we try to cover these things all the time. Exactly. That's confessing. That's who we're talking about here. That's the Jesus who is issuing the universal call. Yes. We're not coming to find out our own deity so that we can have everything we want. We're coming because we're lost sinners and we need a savior. Amen. You know, I was thinking, Jessica, the, the reply to you was that you were being a Pharisee for doing that. What's interesting is I don't remember exactly what session it was. Bob was teaching in Acts. It was Acts 5 through 7 in those chapters. And what's very interesting is it never dawned on me the way it did that day that he pointed it out in Sunday school was, remember, the apostles are preaching and they're doing miraculous deeds. Well, remember, the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders of Israel, they didn't ban the disciples from doing the deeds. They prohibited them from preaching in the name of Christ. That's the issue. So what's interesting is in that example, this man would never have been prohibited by his deeds. The Sanhedrin would have allowed him to continue on because he didn't preach in the name of Christ. And that shows you where the power really is. And that was a point that Bob made to us in the studies in Acts. I thought that was very astute. So yeah, the preaching of Christ, who he is, what he's done. If you have a different Christ, it's because you have a different person of Christ or different works. And therefore, you have different Christ, different spirit, different gospel. Now, let me just move on to this last um, part of this verse here, this invitation. Notice it also says, let the one who is thirsty come and let the one who wishes to take the water of life without cost. Now, this really goes together. The one who's thirsty, is, it's a metaphor for those who are thirsty for salvation. And you see this metaphor quite often. In fact, I jotted a bunch of them down. Let's see if I can find them here. Yeah, here it is. Spiritual thirst, uh, Matthew 5, 6, uh, John 6.35, John 6.37, Revelation 7.16. So it's all over the place that you can see this idea of spiritual thirst. But let me connect it to one thing in John that I think is very interesting. Do you remember the Feast of Tabernacles is where on the... By the way, this is five days after the Day of Atonement. So it'd be on the 15th day of the seventh month. Remember, Israel was to have this holy convocation for seven days, really eight. There was an eighth at the end for 
the, the summarization of the entire event. But what was to occur is they're to celebrate God's provision of uh, protecting them in the wilderness, the provision when God had actually dwelt with them in the wilderness. Well, one of the main things that God did is he provided food and water. So through the Feast of Tabernacles in John 7, the idea is that you have the high priest who would take a procession every day of this feast, all seven days, and he would take this golden flagon, is what they called it, and they would dip it in the pool of Siloam. And they would take this water and they would bring it to the altar and they would pour it out. And the imagery would be when Messiah comes, one day he is going to pour out on us the Spirit. But they're also reflecting back on how God had sustained them by providing them water. So it was a look back and a look forward. Well, on the very last day of the feast, Jesus stands up and he applies it to himself. And listen to what he says. Turn your Bibles to John 7.37. John 7.37, Jesus is going to show that if you're really thirsty, it's not just the Feast of Tabernacles, but you're going to find the quenching of your spiritual thirst in Christ. The Feast of Tabernacles points to him and is fulfilled by him. John 7.37. Notice it says, Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. So here again is this universal call. Jesus doesn't say, well, it's only for some. He calls everyone. If you're thirsty... You can come to him and drink. And it's obvious that he's talking about spiritual thirst. Now, what's so beautiful is one of the promises in the Old Testament is that in the last days, God would what? He would pour out his spirit. So you see this pouring out. It's always the reference of water in relationship to the spirit. You see this in Joel chapter 2. You see it in Jeremiah 31. Well, isn't it interesting when Jesus ascends... Remember, he is the one who ends up pouring out the Spirit at Pentecost. I think we saw that in Acts chapter 3. So he is the agent by which the Holy Spirit is dispensed. The Holy Spirit comes from both the Father and the Son. So the Son's coming into history at his first advent is the fulfillment of these promises. God's Spirit is going to be poured out. Salvation will be poured out. But what's interesting is the first advent does not exhaust the pouring out of Christ's spiritual life. At his second advent, Jesus will literally be reigning on the throne in Jerusalem. And it says, in fact, turn your Bibles, if you will, to Zechariah 14.8. Zechariah 14.8 is Jesus is on his throne. You're going to have spiritual water that comes from the throne room. And these are living waters that proceed from the throne. This is found in Zechariah 14.8. I'll let you turn to it there for a minute. Zechariah 14, 8. It says, and in that day, now remember, this is after the Messiah has defeated the enemies surrounding Jerusalem. He set up his kingdom. It says, in that day, living waters will flow out of Jerusalem, half of them toward the eastern sea and the other half toward the western sea. That'd be the Mediterranean. The eastern, of course, would be the Dead Sea. It will be in summer as well as in winter. Now, one of the questions in that text, of course, is, is this symbolic or is it literal? I don't think we have to choose between the two. I think it's literal, but there's powerful symbolism, that if you want to find life, it's found in Jesus Christ who's reigning on the throne. And the waters will literally 
as we read in Ezekiel 47, they will bring life even to the Dead Sea that by and large is dead today and doesn't support any life. And so again, it's literal and it's symbolic. So where do you find the living water? It's through Jesus Christ. It's what he said to the Samaritan woman at the well in John 4. It's what he said here in John 7, and he says it again in Revelation 22. If you're spiritual thirsty, spiritually thirsty, you're not going to find satisfaction in life anywhere else. You'll find it only in Jesus Christ alone. Okay, so let's go on to this warning now that we see in verses 18 through 19, where Jesus, again, is continuing speaking. He says, I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city, which are written in this book. So notice this prohibition. Let me get my pointer out. The prohibition is that if anyone adds to the prophecy of this book, and anyone, whoops, where does it adds? Where's the taking away? Oh, down here. Oh, yeah, here's the takes away. Sorry, I couldn't find it. (laughs) My own PowerPoint, isn't that sad? That's why I should have had an underline. So if anyone adds or anyone takes away from the prophecy of this book, what's going to be added to them are the plagues of the book, which means the wrath of God, and what's going to be taken away are the promises in the book. Okay, that's, that's the idea there. Now, one thing that I want to point out real quickly is notice John says this is a prophecy. Okay, so... Remember, John is inspired by the Holy Spirit to write Scripture. Now, why is this important? Because in the debate about the interpretation of the book of Revelation, it really, in a sense, boils down to two camps. Those who want to say Revelation is merely apocalyptic literature and those who are saying, no, it's more prophetic literature. Now, let me explain why that's important. Apocalyptic literature became very in vogue. It was very common in the intertestamental period between the last prophet and the coming of John the Baptist. And what people were doing is they were writing fanciful things, expecting this messianic age one day to dawn, for example. But they would write highly symbolic words. They weren't inspired. And you could read into them anything that you wanted into their symbolism. So what liberal theologians would often do is they take the book of Revelation and they see all these symbols and they say, ah, this is apocalyptic literature, you can't know it. In fact, you can read anything you want into it, and that's exactly what they did. The problem with labeling it apocalyptic literature is John properly gives us the genre of the writing. He says both in the beginning and here at the end that it's prophecy. Well, I don't know about you. If I'm going to say, well, it's either apocalyptic or it's prophetic, well, I'm going to go with John who says it's prophetic. Now, yes, he uses symbols, but every time he gives you a symbol he explains to you what the symbol is. For example, he says in Revelation 12, you have the dragon. And who's the dragon? Well, he doesn't leave you hanging. He tells you it's, it's Satan. The lampstands or the churches, the star, you know, he just lays it all out for you. And if he doesn't explicitly tell you what the symbol is, he alludes directly to an Old Testament passage which tells you what it is. So how is that apocalyptic in the sense that you can read in to the symbol any meaning you want? No, the meaning is grounded by the Apostle John, who is a personal spokesman of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we know he is because he was called. He also, number two, was an eyewitness of the resurrection. Number three, he was personally instructed by the Lord Jesus Christ. And number four, he did miraculous deeds. 
That's what the apostles did. That's why we know what he says is valid and not the liberal theologian. When John says his own writing is prophecy, it's prophecy. By the way, one other boogaboo, I'll get this off my chest. I remember listening to one scholar said, well, I believe the book of Revelation is broken into seven different parts. Well, that's news to John because John says in the opening chapter, he talks about the things that were, the things that are, and the things that are going to be. That's the structure of the book. He gives you the structure of the book. He tells you what the genre is. He tells you what the symbols are. So what is all the angst about in the interpretation of the book of Revelation? You know what the angst is about? That people don't want to believe what it says. That's the issue. The key issue in understanding the book of Revelation is believing what it says. That's the core issue. It's just unbelief, the idea that it's apocalyptic literature. So I'm sorry, I'll get off my soapbox now, but that's significant, that idea of prophecy. Now, one question we have to ask, answer, I think, is, is John saying then that there, there's two really options, I think, to interpret this text. One is to say that you're not to add or subtract to the Word of God in the sense that you don't want to add or subtract to the canon. Or is John saying that there shall not be distortion of this prophecy? the idea that you're adding or subtracting and therefore distorting it. So in other words, can we take this and say, well, this proves, yeah, and I like Scott said, well, yes, it's both. Um, and it, it, that's possible. It could be both as well. Some will say this proves that the canon is closed at this point because he's saying you can't add or subtract. The one issue with that, though, and let me just have you turn to Deuteronomy 4. The one issue is the same words are used in Deuteronomy 4. Okay, so turn to Deuteronomy 4.2. Now, here's what I want you to think about. Deuteronomy 4.2, you have this in the law. I'll I'll let you turn there and give you a moment here. Deuteronomy 4.2, this is what Moses says through the the Lord says through Moses. Deuteronomy 4.2, you shall not add to the word which I am commanding you, nor take away from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God which I command you. Now, if we take that prohibition about adding or subtracting to Deuteronomy, saying that nothing can be added after that, then you end up being a Sadducee. Remember, why are the... I won't say it again. The Sadducees are sad because they don't believe in the resurrection, therefore they're sad, you see. But remember, the Sadducees only believed in the first five books. And I think that may be one of the reasons why. They think anyone who believes in any other book is adding or subtracting to the word of God. But the issue here, I think, in Deuteronomy 4 is not that there would no longer be any revelation, but what was particularly being guarded were the revelatory words that God spoke to Moses on Sinai, that they could not be manipulated. Now, why is that important? Because Bob has oftentimes pointed us to Deuteronomy 18. Deuteronomy 18, in fact, turn your Bibles there. Deuteronomy 18, verses 15 through 19. I want you to turn there because that expects further revelation. It expects further adding to the canon, but that's why I think in Deuteronomy 4, the issue is you can't add to the Mosaic law. You can't add to the words that God gave, but the canon will, in fact, grow. There's going to be more revelation to come, and we see that in Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 19. That's a passage Bob and I often talk about because it's cited on the Mount of Transfiguration, and you'll see where from us referencing it. Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 19 Here's where it was expected further revelation would come. 
It says, Yahweh, your God, will raise up for you a prophet like me. Moses is speaking. From among you, from your countrymen, you shall listen to him. Now stop there. How many times have you heard Bob and I say in the Mount of Transfiguration, remember you have Elijah, you have Moses, you have Jesus. Elijah and Moses disappear. There's only Jesus, and there's a voice from heaven that says, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. And that's directly bringing you to that Deuteronomy 18.15, showing you that he was the prophet to come, the mediator of the new covenant. And if you won't listen to him, as you'll see in verse 19, it'll be required of you. That's the idea. So we'll keep reading. Verse 16, Deuteronomy 18, it says, This is according to all that you asked of the Lord, your God at Horeb. So there's the connection to Sinai on the day of the assembly, saying, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God. Let me not see this great fire anymore, or I will die. What's the point of that? God uses a mediator. He used Moses in the Old Covenant as the mediator. Now he uses Jesus Christ, his son, God himself as the mediator of the new covenant. Verse 17, it says, The Lord said to me, they have spoken well. It's good to have a mediator. Verse 18, I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen. So he's going to come from Israel like you. He's going to be a mediator like Moses. And I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. It shall come about that whoever will not listen to my words, which he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. If those if there are any of those who reject Jesus Christ's words because he is the prophet that was foretold, it's going to be required of them. That's the idea. So let's put this together then with Revelation 22. If, if it's true that Deuteronomy 4 couldn't be a prohibition against further revelation, the adding and the subtracting of words had to be a prohibition against distortion of the Mosaic Covenant. In the same way, I think that's exactly what John is saying in Revelation 22. So why am I saying that? Because I don't think this is a text we can just go to and say, well, the canon's closed. But we can prove that the canon is closed because we have no authoritative apostles or prophets on the scene today. That's where the argument must go. The apostles and prophets of the New Testament were those who spoke authoritatively and uniquely for Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus says, remember, in Matthew 10, 40, Whoever receives you, the apostles, receives me. And whoever does not receive you does not receive me, and therefore doesn't receive the one who sent me. So the apostles were proven to be the unique spokesman for Christ by the four criteria that I'd given you earlier. All of them were eyewitnesses of the resurrection is the big one. Okay, well, do you have any eyewitnesses of the resurrection today? No. You might say, well, how did Paul meet that standard? Remember, he saw the resurrected Christ too. He also was personally instructed by Christ in Arabia, according to Galatians, the book of Galatians. So he meets all the standards. Nobody else can today. And if that's true, you no longer have revelation that's being given. And that's why we have in Jude 3, it says, a faith once and for all handed down to the saints. Bob showed us Ephesians 2.20 in the studies that he's been doing in the sermons. Remember, the church has been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone. So think of that imagery. If a building is being built, do you have multiple foundations or do you have one laid once and for all? You only have one. You don't have multiple foundations of Christ and the apostles and prophets. That's been laid. Yeah, Scott. Um, just bring the Catholic, Roman Catholic Church into that, please. I'm sorry? I, I didn't... Bring the Roman Catholic Church into that, please. Yeah, very good point. So the Roman Catholic Church believes that their 
what they call vicar of Christ, the Pope, is an apostle of Christ. They believe in apostolic succession from Peter through the Pope. And so what they believe is that the, the Pope, when he speaks ex cathedra, which means from the seat, he is speaking the very words of an apostle, therefore the very words of Christ. There's multiple problems with that. The first is he can't be qualified because he doesn't meet the four criteria. Did Pope, uh, what's the one now? I can't even remember all the heretics they have. Francis, okay, it was Benedict before. Okay, Francis. Francis is the Marxist, right? Well, did he, was he personally called by Jesus Christ? No. What's the evidence of that? Well, he didn't see the resurrected Christ. He didn't see him. He wasn't personally instructed by Jesus Christ, and he doesn't do miraculous deeds. What does that mean? He's not an apostle. He's a $3 bill. And so unless his words conform to the words of the apostles and prophets, he's not to be listened to. Okay? So that's the issue. The apostolic succession isn't true because they don't meet the criteria, and therefore we can reject it outright. And so it is with the new apostolic reformation movement and anyone who claims to speak for God in an authoritative way by giving you extra revelation that's not found in Scripture. If someone tells you something because the Scripture says it and it accords with the Scripture, then that's binding because it comes ultimately from Jesus Christ and his apostles. In fact, Bob, do you remember the, um, I, I don't expect you to remember all the n- numbers on your articles, but you gave that article in CIC that you wrote, it was called Binding and Loosing. That's one of the most important, I article think. Article number one. Oh, it was, oh, that was number one. I always one think that. Two. <laughs> well, <laughs> that's easy. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, I, I did. That was the first, that was published in 1992. Okay. It it came from, by the way, yeah, similar kind of discussion because before that, in the late '80s, I hosted a pastors meeting, yeah, and I wanted to convince pastors about literally what you're just talking about. Yeah, yeah, amen. It was just saying scripture alone. Yeah, a lot of them were charismatic, right? And so I presented papers and talked to them, and we had a discussion. Yeah, but. It was cordial and good, but none of them wanted to change what what they actually did in their churches. (laughs) Sure, sure. Uh, And so then I got, I decided that's not going to work. I thought it would be best to reach pastors. Then I got this big pastors list where we sent it out. Yeah. And one of the things we talked about was binding and loosing. It all comes back to that. It does, it does. Who speaks authoritatively? For God. And who is it that we must listen to? Yeah. And what is the authoritative word of God? Amen. If you can't get that right, then you haven't even started. Right, right. But I couldn't get agreement on that. Wow. Because they wanted to say, no, the Spirit told me this, or the Spirit told me that. Right. Are you sure? Is that <laughs> binding and authoritative? I was just debating on the email yeah. of an apostle a while back. And he said, well, why do you keep going back to binding? Why do you keep saying that? Right. Well, because if what you say to me as an apostle, this guy claimed he was an apostle, may or may not be from God, I can feel free to not listen to it. Right, right. But if you're speaking bindingly for God, and I don't listen to you, then I come under the judgment of God. Amen. So I'm saying scripture alone, and you're saying new apostles and prophets. Amen. And I choose not to listen to you. 
because I don't believe you're an apostle, and I don't believe you speak from God unless what you say is true scripture. Right, amen. Well, then we could have no fellowship. Right, yeah. Well, so I got frustrated because the pastors wouldn't follow through. Sure. And, that, and that's how CIC then came. So then I, uh, yeah, a businessman that we knew who's now with the Lord okay. said, I, I like what you're doing. I'd like you to publish this. And so here's, I think, $1,500. Wow. I'm not going to give you any more money. So you've got six months. Publish your articles. And if, it, if people want to read it, it'll be self-sufficient. Wow. If not, we'll just can it. Right. So it all started with binding and loosening. Yeah, so we published it. And now we've been going for, uh, I don't know, almost 30 years or whatever. Yeah. praise God. But that was the, the reason that was the issue one and two. Because it's the whole issue. It is. That's right. Who is speaking for God? That's right. Okay? That's right. Because that's the power position. Amen. If I can get up in the pulpit and say, you have to listen to me or God will judge you because I'm me and I'm important and therefore give me your money and listen to me. Right. Then you're forced to either decide yes or no. Yeah. And these apostles and prophets will always tell you you're going to hell. Yeah. Right. Just like the Pope. Yep. You don't listen right. to us, you got to go to hell. Yeah. And I've been damned to hell more than once <laughs> um, by the apostles because I won't listen to them. Right, right. Yeah. Well said. Um, you know, I've just be praying. I've got to go this week to confront, uh, I won't mention the name uh, this publicly, but it's a seminary that oh, yeah. this coming week I'll be going with a gal. And what had happened was this gal runs an organization called Young Americans for Freedom. And they invited a pro-life speaker to come and speak. Well, the invitations went out. This woman did everything that the seminary, the Christian institution had asked, this university. But then what happened is the university faculty said, we don't want her to come. The pro-life speaker's name is Star Parker. And the reason we don't want her to come is because she's radical and sensational. Well, right away, if you follow what Bob taught in his very first article, Binding and Loosing, all you have to do is to go to the scripture. And if someone's going to make a claim that Star Parker, who teaches pro-life, that you shouldn't murder people in the made in the image of God, you just simply take her positions and you say, well, you show me where she's wrong according to the terms of the new covenant. Right? Because either she's radical because she doesn't follow the scriptures, or she's radical because she does. And I would take it that a Christian institution would not mind if she's radical because she's following the scripture. So the contention then must be that she's radical because she's not following the scripture. Therefore, you show us, you do binding and loosing. You show us where what she says does not line up with the terms of the new covenant. And if you cannot do that, we will not listen to you. We won't listen to you. We are not bound by the words of men and women. We're bound by scripture. And if someone's going to be called radical because they hold to the terms of scripture by a Christian institution, that Christian institution is guilty of slander. And they're guilty of not listening to the doctrines of Christ revealed by the terms of the new covenant. So binding and loosing is absolutely essential. In fact, Bob, you and I should do a Sunday school just on that again sometime. Let's do it. Oh, okay, so all sorts of ideas. But anyway, let me finish. This is the last slide. I think we can do it. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, I'm sorry, Norm. Oh, quick question. Yeah. Um, what was the final answer to the question about uh, this book of the prophecy? Is it? Oh, didn't I ever answer book, that? Or is it both the whole Bible? What yeah, so here's what I would say. Regarding, what I would say is when he says not to add or subtract, 
in light of the close reference to Deuteronomy 4, Deuteronomy 4 must not be the idea that there was no revelation to come, because otherwise you couldn't have Deuteronomy 18, which promised a prophet to come. So what I'm thinking is more than likely what John is doing is he's guarding the distortion of the prophecy itself. In fact, in 1 John 4, remember he says there's many false prophets that have got onto the world. So my, what I'm claiming then is that I wouldn't necessarily use this to say, well, there aren't any words added to the canon. The reason why is if you're in a debate, some sly fellow might find Deuteronomy 4 and say, well, wait a minute, the same, the same language is used there. Are you saying then that the rest of the Bible was wrong to be added to it? Do you see what I'm saying? So what I'm saying is rationally, I think we can fight the idea of a closed canon on other ideas. Namely, there's no more apostles. And if you don't have any more apostles, you don't have any more people speaking for Christ. That's where the battle is. So this particular warning is about distorting the prophecy of the book of Revelation, which liberal theologians have done, which people who say, well, it's just apocalyptic literature have done. So they don't have the right to do that. So it applies to them who want to spiritualize and make it apocalyptic literature when it's clearly a prophecy. So does, does that help? Okay, very good, very good. I'm glad you brought me back to that. Yeah. I was well, glad, okay, so um, going back to this do not add to or take from. Yeah. So Satan comes to Eve in the garden and said, has, not, has God indeed said? And the first thing Eve does is, does is add to it. God said, don't eat it or touch it right. or you will surely die. Well, God didn't say don't touch it. Right. But then Satan turns right around and takes from what God said and said, no, you won't surely die. So we see right. this adding to and taking from Absolutely. going all the way back to the, to good the garden. Good job, Jesse. Yeah, very good. Very good. So, In fact, um, you're right. Satan, if I recall, yeah, Eric. I've been, I've been waiting, but I, you're trying so hard to get done. <laughs> I, the, I think with, I can make with, it. With yeah. Deuteronomy 4, verse 2. I'm sorry? With Deuteronomy yeah. 4, verse 2. If you look at Deuteronomy 4, verse 1, which is the antecedent, Moses is talking about, uh, you know, listen to the statutes and ordinances I am teaching you to follow so that you may live, enter, and take possession of the land. Uh, And then it says, Yahweh, the Lord God of your fathers, is giving you. Okay, he's talking about the law. Exactly, very good. I should have added that's excellent. Very good. You get free coffee. Okay, good. That's what I'm looking for. (laughs) All right, very good. Thank you. That's good context. It shows us the issue or the stipulations within the Mosaic Covenant itself. Very good. Okay, so, um, yes, Satan distorted the word. In fact, he added to it. Remember, he says, has God said that you can't eat of all the trees of the garden? Well, no, he never said that. It was the one tree. So he was adding to it, wasn't he? He was distorting it. So, okay, let's finish up. This is the last slide, and this is the imminent hope. Revelation 22, 20 through 21. Now here, we have the speaker switch from Christ back to John. Notice what he says. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen. Okay, notice the phrase, yes, I am coming soon. Remember Revelation 1.1, and here at the very end of the book, you have the idea of Christ coming soon. The adverb there, takus, means imminent. It is at hand. The whole book of Revelation is bracketed by the doctrine of imminence that the coming of this Messiah can occur at any moment. That's the idea. One passage I want you to turn to. Go to Daniel 2.28, if you will. Daniel 2.28. Do we have time for this? Yeah, I think we can pull it off. Daniel 2.28. 
As you're turning to Daniel 2.20, I just want to remind you of the context there. Remember, that's where Nebuchadnezzar has the dream of the four successive kingdoms that would come about. Then after that, you'd have the Antichrist kingdom demolished by the Messianic kingdom. And so this obviously entails things that would happen in the last days. So you see that referred to in Daniel 2.28. Notice Daniel 2.28, it says, this is Daniel speaking, he says, However, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will take place in the last days. Okay, stop there, don't go any further. Notice that phrase, what will take place in the last days? That's Revelation 1.1. Revelation 1.1 says, John... I'm showing you, remember the Apostle John, he says, I am showing you the things that must take place soon. He's building it off of Daniel 2.28. Does everyone see that? Daniel 2.28 says these are the things that are going to take place in the last days. Dear ones, when did the last days begin? With the first advent of Christ. Remember in Hebrews 1, 1 through 2, God has spoken to our fathers in many ways and many portions, but in these last days he has spoken to us through his son. The last days began with the first advent of Christ. So in Revelation 1.1, the reason why John is saying these are the things that must take place soon rather than the last days, as it said in Daniel 2.28, is because we're living in the last days. And if you're living in the last days, the second coming of Christ is always at hand. It is always a threat for those who don't believe, and it always is an imminent blessing and promise for those who do. It is always at hand. He could come tonight, But he doesn't have to. He could come 500 years from now. It is always at hand. That's imminence. Imminence doesn't guarantee any time frame. It just guarantees that it will occur. And it can occur at any moment. Now, one more thing. Notice here at the end, it says, Amen, come Lord Jesus. This reminds me of one of the great prayers at the end of 1 Corinthians 16.22, where all the saints cry out, Maranatha. Maranatha is an Aramaic term that says, Our Lord, come. And the reason I want to tie that to this phrase, Amen, come Lord Jesus, is when the Christians at Corinth were saying, Our Lord, come Maranatha, it's very strange that a Greek-speaking group would be using Aramaic. And it shows us then that that Aramaic term, Our Lord, come Maranatha, was a password, a buzzword, a key phrase that was in, within the entire Christian community. So, so ingrained on their minds is that the Lord Jesus could come back at any moment that they were using this phrase everywhere, Maranatha, our Lord come. That should be the heart's cry of every believer. That's what's going to enable you to persevere in the dark days. The blessed hope, the very promises of God, that's what enables us to persevere. On the heart of every Christian is the desire that Jesus Christ will come, defeat our enemies, and give us salvation. That's what the book of Revelation is about. One famous scholar said the book of Revelation simply means Christ wins. That's it. He's coming imminently. Dear brothers and sisters, it's been a great pleasure teaching you the book of Revelation. And, uh, well, thanks. I I certainly don't deserve that. But uh, I am excited, and I tell you, one of the great things that you and I have to hold firm to is the idea that the book of Revelation can be known. That's the issue of our day. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your promises. We thank you that your Son will break through the clouds imminently for us to bring us home and to raise us up. And we thank you for these assured promises because you are a God who cannot lie. 
I pray for my brothers and sisters that the great truths of Revelation would sit, sit deep in their heart, that they may persevere into that day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.